0: Contained herein are the heresies of Redolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I study the secrets of the divine plagues and uncover the blasphemous truth that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The heresies of Redolf Buntwine,
1: wherever podcasts are available.
0: Realm presents Book Burners, Season Two, Episode
1: Six. Three, Asante and Francis woke to a knock on the door. Light, bright but gray, was streaming through the curtains of the room. Just a minute, Asante said. It was Liam in a tracksuit, beads of sweat on his brow, holding a sheet of paper. He entered the room, then bent down and picked up another sheet of paper from off the floor. See, you got one of these, too, he said, waving the paper. It's the note from the conference organizers. They're saying an attendee suffered an accident of some sort last night, and they are kindly asking that we now move about in groups of three or more after dark. Huh, Francis said. Must have been the same accident that chased me down the hall last night. Liam nodded in approval. Must say you're already developing a sense of humor about these things. Good move, that's the only way to cope. He turned to Asante. When is the rest of the gang supposed to arrive? This evening, Asante said. Just in time, Liam said. Though that gets me wondering, Asante said. Why did the conference organizers tell people only to be more careful at night? How do they know we're safe during the day? You want to talk to them, or should I? Liam said. Asante thought about it. You should- she said. I have someone else I need to corner. Asante found Izquierdo in the cafe near the lobby, alone, drinking a cup of coffee. Can I join you? She asked. He hesitated, then gestured toward the chair across the table. I can't recommend the coffee, he said, but if you must. She ordered a cup of tea. I've been thinking about what you told me yesterday, she said. What part? He said. About you being wary of talking to me. You're right. All of you here are right about us in the Vatican. You have reason to be wary. Thank you for understanding. But I came here with questions, Asante said, and I think you have at least some of the answers. Izquierdo said nothing and looked across the cafe. Asante's tea arrived. She took a sip. Is it good? He asked. She made a face. He gave a soft chuckle. She put her cup down. The truth is that I share your mistrust of the organization I work for, Asante said. Then why do you work there? He asked. Are you saying you love the university you work for, academia in general? How has your department been treating you the past few years? Point taken. But there is a difference between being fed up with bureaucracy and being opposed to the mission. You're right, she said. She lowered her voice. You told me yesterday that you wanted to believe I was serious about the confidentiality agreements we signed. Before I tell you what I'm going to tell you, I need you to be serious about that agreement as well. I am serious, Ischierdo said. You have my word. Something about the way he said it made her believe him. All right, she said. The truth is that my organization is in a moment of redefinition. Things have happened within the society and to it that have made it possible to change its mandate a little. To change its relationship to magic. We have the chance right now to change the way the society works. Iskierdo nodded. This is good news for you? Yes, Asanti said. She surprised herself a little by how much she meant that. I have always been fascinated by magic. Yet you agreed to work for an organization with the sole mission of locking it away. That was never why I took the job. It was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. I think if it were offered to you, you couldn't pass it up either. That's probably true, Isquierdo said wryly. It has been frustrating at times, Asante said. In the society's defense, I have seen things, and my friends have seen things, that have made me understand how dangerous magic can be. But that can be an argument for learning to control magic, can it not? Yes, Asante said. And what are these things you have seen? Asante looked at Izquierdo for a second. Demons, she said. There's no better word for it. With your own eyes? Yes. In the Vatican? Isquierdo said. Yes, she said. Isquierdo nodded. We've heard rumors. I don't know what you've heard, and please forgive me, I can't tell you much more, but yes, there were demons in the Vatican. There was havoc there. We are still recovering. It has made us think hard about the way we do our work, and it has brought me here and to you. What do you want to ask me? You know that there was once a part of our society that did research magic, and that this is no longer the case, Asante said. Yes, Izquierdo said. And you know that after they were forced out, they don't appear at all in the written record? Yes. Do you know where they are? No, Izquierdo said. But I think I know where they were. There is a record, or the closest thing any of us has to a record of magical activity, of a hiking party being caught in a snowstorm in the Tatra Mountains in Poland in the mid-1800s. According to the hikers' journals, they saw the lights of a village in the valley below that wasn't on their map. Upon entering the village, they were not so much welcomed as detained. The village, they said, was tiny, and everyone there seemed to be about the same age. There were no children, no old people. The hikers didn't understand a word anyone in the village said, but there appeared to be a meeting of some kind in which the villagers decided what to do with the hikers. In the end, they were given lodging in various houses in the village, and they all fell asleep. In the morning, when they woke up, they were lying in a grove in the forest, not far from one another. The weather was clear. The village was gone. But each of the hikers awoke wrapped in thick furs that had kept them from freezing to death, furs that they knew they had not brought with them. Let me guess, Asante said. No one believed their story. You have heard this kind of thing before. Isquierdo said. Yet the hikers kept the furs for the rest of their lives as proof of what had happened, and they swore to their dying days that the village was real. Even though no one ever found the village again? Exactly. When did you say this was? Mid-1800s. I knew it was too good to be true, Asante said. The Vatican's magic research ended at least a century before that. Disciples? Descendants? Isquierdo suggested. Wouldn't there be more than one dubious story about them if there were a continuous line of them? Which is exactly what I was thinking when I first came across the story. If what the hiker said is true, and not a hallucination brought on by hypothermia, Asante said, that they all had the same hallucination makes the hypothesis seem less likely to me, Iskierdo said. Maybe they just wanted to make up a story to get attention after surviving a winter storm. Maybe, but why would they do that? Why do people do what they do? Why are we here at the conference discussing magic? Point taken, Iskierdo said. But if you approach the story with an open mind, if you assume the hiker's tale is true, it's unexplainable within normal parameters, which means the only explanation would be magical. You're making a huge assumption, Asante said. We're not here to prove anything, Iskierdo said. We're just talking over bad coffee. Say the people who saved the hikers in the 19th century are connected to the people who were forced out of the church. How could this be? Maybe they've become immortal, Asante said. I thought of that too. Have you ever encountered someone who has figured out how to live forever? Asante thought of Grace. No, she said. Not really, not that long. If not immortality, then what? Izquierdo said. I have no idea, Asante said. Isquierdo's face, which had been animated, fell. And here I was hoping you would have an answer to that. I don't, Asante said. How long have you been working on this? Years, Isquierdo answered, and laughed. At himself, it seemed to Asante, for how ludicrous it all must have seemed. Which is when both of them heard the screams from the lobby. A man ran by the entrance to the cafe, his hands flailing in the air as if he were on fire, though there were no flames. Asanti got up and ran to the man just in time to see him collapsed in front of the sliding doors leading outside. The doors opened. The man writhed on the ground, moaning. He seemed uninjured at first, but when Asante got closer, she saw something, a horde of tiny somethings, crawling on him and burrowing into his skin. She got even closer and recognized them at once. They were tiny pieces of rubber from an eraser. The man fainted and the pieces dropped off him. Later, he would explain that he had been sitting in a lecture and had written something down in his notes that he realized was wrong. He erased it. The writing had reappeared. He erased it again. The writing came back again in even bolder letters. When the man tried to erase it again, the eraser itself exploded into far more pieces than was physically possible. They covered him from head to toe and started digging. Before he ran out of the room in a panic, he managed to catch a last glimpse of the writing he'd been trying to erase. It was filling up with symbols he couldn't read as though written in black ink by an invisible hand.
0: As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. shopify.com slash realm <laughs> Scott Sigler Slices is a fiction podcast with dark tales harvested from the mind of a number one New York Times best-selling author. Currently featuring Slay Season 2, a raunchy, monster-killing, anti-hero story that's Breaking Bad meets Buffy meets John Wick, with new episodes every Sunday. Season 1 is complete and waiting for you in the feed. Listen to Slay on Scott Sigler Slices with Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: An October morning in a quiet suburb in a town in Scotland. A man is walking his dog when suddenly... Shots are fired from a car. The man falls to the ground and the car speeds off. An ordinary residential area, but extraordinary things happen in ordinary places. The instinct, right away was it was a political thing. We're talking about Russian-trained, high-ranking officer in the Secret Service. An Assassin Comes to Town, a six-part podcast... Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. A projector in one of the conference rooms had turned to liquid and run onto the floor. People had stopped using the elevators. The doors seemed to be acting a little too much like jaws, and now that they weren't taking on any passengers, they just sat in the lobby growling like they were hungry. Nobody was going anywhere near the swimming pool. In the lobby, a few people were checking out early, though not as many as Liam would have thought. Behind the folding tables that the conference had set up, Kapos was alternating between answering his constantly ringing phone and fielding questions from people who kept approaching him. He looked exhausted, but not surprised when he saw Liam coming. He didn't even try to hide his exasperation. You are here to shut us down, Kapos said. I'm here because I want to know what's going on, Liam said. You have eyes and ears, ask around. I'm asking you, how many people have gone to the hospital? I don't have to answer that question. In fact, answering that question would be a breach of privacy. I'm not asking who, Liam said. I'm asking how many. There is no need for me to answer. Kapos raised his voice a notch. I feel this shouldn't be necessary, and yet I am compelled to remind you of the agreements you signed upon entering this conference. Together, the waiver and the confidentiality agreement can be interpreted as adding up to a rather significant involuntary forfeiture of certain privileges you may feel free to exercise elsewhere. Kapos, Liam said. That's your name, right? You have a good memory. Yes, I do. I'm not the smartest person I know, but I'm not an idiot either. You're not making sense. We haven't waived our right to live. No one, I repeat, no one, Kapos said, has died at this conference, and suggesting as much can be construed as a form of slander, or at least defamation of character. Liam shook his head. This is useless. We've called in the rest of our team. I'm afraid I won't be able to let them enter the conference, as they didn't register properly. How do I get it through your bureaucratic head that I don't care? Liam said. Kappa sputtered for a moment, then regained his composure. I should tell you that in the lengthy conversations we had about whether to allow you to attend the conference, this is exactly the sort of thing we worried would happen that you would take no more than a cursory glance at the conference and the way it is conducted and decide that it was all somehow inappropriate or perhaps even unethical or immoral. I am ashamed to say that at the time I was your strongest ally and defended your attending. You sure didn't act like it when we arrived, Liam said. I had my regrets. I regret it even more now. You should not have come. Wait a minute, Liam said. Are you saying this is normal? Does this happen every year? Kapos took a deep breath. As he exhaled, he seemed calmer, even aloof. I don't have to answer any of your questions, he said. If you would like to make a formal complaint, you can fill out this comment card. You can't be serious, Liam said. Kapos just stood there, the comment card in his hand. His expression didn't change, but Liam noticed that something in his eyes did. He didn't look exhausted anymore, he looked terrified. I've been going about this all wrong, Liam thought. He took the card from Kapos and put it back on the table. I'm sorry, he said. I've been rude. I'm not gonna lodge a complaint. I'm not here to shut this place down. But what if I told you that my teammates and I might be able to make your problems go away? Kapos didn't blink. Do you think you could do that? We might, Liam said. We could certainly try. But you'd have to tell us what's going on first. Capo seemed to think about it for several seconds. Liam sensed he was making a big decision. He nodded. All right, he said finally. He leaned in close to whisper in Liam's ear. Meet me in an hour in room 237. Bring your people, but do not arrive together. Let no one know where you're going and make sure no one sees you. Not twice. I can't guarantee we'll be there. I understand, Liam said. Good, Capo said. One hour. Asante was the last to arrive. She was alone in the hall, except for one other person, a woman about her age who seemed somehow to be entirely gray, a gray suit, light gray hair, even gray skin and eyes. They made eye contact, as strangers do. Asante gave her a polite nod and knocked twice on the door of room 237. Kapos answered the door. Liam and Francis were sitting in metal folding chairs. Kapos took a seat in a curved wooden chair with chip marks on the arms. Yolanda, the other conference organizer, was sitting on one of the beds. Asante sat on the other bed. Thank you all for coming, Kapos said, and for being open to working out an arrangement between your organization and ours. To Asante, it seemed he was following a mental agenda. If he hadn't had time to type one out, he had at least done so in his head. I suppose I will begin by explaining a few things. When the conference began 12 years ago, we were very small, and while many of us were quite knowledgeable about magic, we were less versed in actually using it. In our third year, when the conference was held in Norway, we discovered that this made us vulnerable to an attack by, suppose given the part of the world we were in, you could call them trolls. No one was permanently injured, but uh, perhaps needless to say, there was some significant property damage. We lost our deposit with the hotel and were not invited back. What prevented the troll attack from becoming a disaster, not to mention a public relations nightmare, was the intervention of a few of our conference participants, who themselves turned out not to be altogether human. Rather, they were um, gremlins, I suppose. They revealed their true forms in a rather spectacular display in the hotel's lobby and drove the trolls off, by virtue of being smarter and crueler. In need of security and having no real alternative, we struck a deal with them to be our security for conferences going forward. In exchange, we waived the conference fee and provided airfare. Classy, Liam said. Kapos nodded. The next year, and to some extent the year after that, were our best years. The gremlins were able to cast some sort of spell of protection over the conference. I do not fully understand this, but I'm told this is why you were never able to detect the magic we were conducting here. And they prevented the magic from getting out of hand when our participants' demonstrations ran awry. Our conference in Calgary was our crowning success to date. Asante wasn't sure, but she thought she caught a tear in Kapos' eye. He cleared his throat. Over time, however, and perhaps this should come as no surprise to students of political science, the gremlins, having grown used to their position of authority, have begun to abuse it. Maybe you're not paying them enough, Liam said. We are not paying them at all, Kapos said, apart from waiting fees and covering airfare. And That's my point, and though if we paid them, it might only make it worse. Gentlemen, Asante said, can we save the theorizing for later? Thank you, Capo said. The point is that in the past few years, the gremlins have come to think of the conference as their domain. Harassment of participants ticks upward each year, as does destruction of property, enough that we have been unable to return to the hotels we book at. They will not have us back. You move each year because you have to, Asante said. That's right. Kapos said, I thought it was for convenience. Kapos sighed, I wish it was. Already this year, this resort is threatening us with the same thing. Where will you go after this? And the search for hotel rooms has become tiresome. If the hotels ever start communicating with each other about their experiences with us, we may no longer be able to continue the conference. Kapos's tone of voice became very complicated when he said this. Asante wasn't sure in that moment if Kapos would be devastated or relieved to see it all end. So uh, what you need, Liam said, is a way to be able to bargain with your security, to meet with them as equals instead of being held hostage by them. That would help, yes, Kapos said. How many of them are there? Asanti asked. Kapos and Yolanda exchanged glances. Go on, Yolanda said. Kapos took a breath. Six, naturally he said. They are shapeshifters. In their true form, they have no eyes, and they run like dogs. Or like a dog might if it was in a space station. I don't know how they do it. When they are in human form, they are pale, like the ash in an ashtray. And they have telekinesis. But they are physically weaker in human form. Liam turned to Asante. What do you think? I think we can help you, Asante said to Kapos. But you have to let the rest of our team in. Kapos looked at Yolanda. She nodded. All right, I hope you are as good as your word. We should disperse soon before they notice we've all been gone. They do that much surveillance, Asante said. It's best to assume they do. We cannot be seen leaving this room at the same time. Do you mind if we leave first? We need to meet our colleagues, Asante said. Of course, Kapos said. He motioned toward the door. Liam got up and laughed. An awkward couple minutes of silence passed by. Francis left. Asante smiled at Kapos, opened the door, and headed down the hall. There was the same gray woman sitting on a bench next to the elevator Asante knew everyone had stopped using. They looked at each other, no longer entirely as strangers. The gray woman recognized Asante just as Asante had recognized her. Asante kept walking, made sure no one was following her, then waited until she was back in her room to take out her cell phone. She called Liam. Get Francis, Asante said. The gremlins know, and I don't think they're going to be happy. I'll meet you outside. How long until the rest get here? Sal just called. uh, She said a half hour. I hope it's enough time. She heard the growl through Liam's phone first, then in the hallway outside her door. Run, she told Liam. I already am. Four. I think we're going the wrong way, Sal said. I'm only going the wrong way because you told me to, Grace said, turning the car around. I'm sorry, I can't read Russian, Sal said. Not as sorry as I am, Grace said. We should have sent you instead of Liam so I could read the map. Or you could let me drive for once, Sal said. Not on your life, Grace said. No, no, Menchu said. I never thought I'd say this, but I miss him, Grace said. That's better, Manchu said. Or at least a driver, or navigator, or as a person on the team who can read Russian, unlike Sal. Manchu sighed. We really are his children sometimes, Sal thought and turned it over in her mind. Saw in many ways, that was a good thing. Without Liam and Asante, they could limp along. But missions ran better when they were together, even if all they needed was someone to read the signage in a language Sal didn't know. Here, she said, and pointed to the gate on the side of the road. Is that them? Grace said. Asante, Liam, and Francis stood in front of a grotesque, brutalist building, waving. They didn't look happy. Grace pulled up next to them. We're late because of her, Grace said, pointing to Sal. There's no time for this, Asante said. Leave the car here. We want it to be in one piece. The rest of team three got out of the car. What are we dealing with? Asante described what they had seen, the strange occurrences at the hotel, the creatures she and Francis had fought in the hallway. What Kapos had told them. Grace shrugged. Doesn't sound so hard. Well, Liam said, you should see the hotel right now. They could hear a din of voices and breaking wood as they approached the complex. The lobby doors had been knocked out. Inside the lobby furniture was whirling through the air as though caught in a cyclone. Conference goers and hotel staff cowered behind the counter, or lay flat out on the floor. In the middle of the room, the ashen man Francis had seen earlier stood with his hands out, cackling with pleasure. Grace looked grumpy. I fly all his way for this, she said. Before anyone else could move, she dodged through the flying furniture in a blur and stopped right next to the man, cocked her arm back, and punched him square in the face four times. His head jerked, his knees buckled, and he flopped to the floor. The furniture crashed with him, splintering against the marble floor. Who's next, Grace said. But the gremlin wasn't unconscious. He gathered just enough strength to let out an ear-splitting scream of pain and anger and warning before Grace stomped on his face and put him out. For the briefest moment, there was only the sound of something small and metal rolling across the lobby floor, a piece that had come loose from something when it fell. Then they could hear windy, elemental howls from five different directions, gathering force as they approached. Gusts of air blew in from the hallways, and then there they were, the other five, the gray woman in front. They were all still in human form, maybe just so they could make it clear how angry they were. This is our kingdom, the gray woman snarled. Our kingdom for three days. You won't have much of a kingdom now that you've trashed this place, Liam said, to drive you out. The gray woman said, you don't belong here. You know nothing of magic. You haven't for centuries since you drove your wizards away. Beat them down, my brothers and sisters. The four ashen people around her slipped into other shapes, duplicates of the thing that had chased Francis down the hall. They all jumped for grace at once, were on her in a pack, as the woman spread out her hands. She started to lift the jagged debris of the furniture into the air. Sal, so, Asante, Menchu said and nodded toward the woman. Liam was already running to help Grace, who had knocked out one of the gremlins by throwing it against the floor, but was still wrestling with the other three. Manchu followed Liam. Asante turned to Francis. Hit the floor, she said. Not a chance, Francis said. She joined Sal and Asante, and they made a running leap for the gray woman. A chair bouncing off the floor caught Francis in the side, and she toppled. Sal and Asante kept going. On the other side of the room, Manchu and Liam had pried one of the gremlins off of Grace, and Liam punched it until it gave up. With only two creatures left, Grace got one in each hand, just as Sal and Asante reached the woman and knocked her over. Grace smashed the two gremlins together until both lost consciousness. She dropped them on the floor. I haven't done that in a while, she said. Sal and Asante had the gray woman pinned. Tell us what you meant, Asante said to the woman. What wizards? The woman smirked. What wizards, Asante said again. The gray woman broke into laughter and started to change shape. Ah, screw this, Sal said and punched her. She was out.
0: GZM Shows and the creators of Six Minutes are rolling out their newest audio adventure with the podcast Discovering Dad. A cautious single dad with a secret past and his rebellious kids embark on a thrilling quest complete with hidden treasure, villains, and a family curse. New episodes of Discovering Dad roll out weekly starting June 11th on Apple Podcasts. Follow the show so you never miss an episode. Or listen early and ad-free as a GZM Show subscriber. Go to gzmshows.com
1: to learn more. Five. The thaumatological symposium did not get its security deposit back, Yolanda said. Citing the extensive damage to the lobby, the management said that they would never allow us to come back for as long as the resort complex existed. They'd like us to check out as soon as possible. Kapos' hotel room, again. Kapos shook his head. Three of the gremlins, again in human form, sat on the bed. Grace stood near the door, arms folded. Asante and Menchu looked at each other. We can't keep running the conference like this, Kapos said. But you still need us, the gray man said. Who will hide the magic you conduct from the sight of others? Who will protect you from the bigger demons? Your protection, Kapos said, isn't worth it, not anymore. Not for the damage you cause. Besides, we'd have to keep the society on call in case anything goes awry. Grace nodded at the gremlins on the bed. We have history, the gray woman said. We've been coming here for years. And yet, Yolanda said, in light of your behavior of the past few years, none of that seems to matter. The gremlin shifted uncomfortably. We were just having fun, the gray man said. People got hurt, Yolanda said. But they're okay now. Don't belittle the pain you've caused. Our current plan, if you don't give us any alternative, is to ban you for life, Yolanda said. At this, the gray man looked upset. He didn't seem to be able to speak. He needs this conference, the gray woman said. She drew herself up, looking defiant. He doesn't have tenure yet. How dare you threaten his livelihood? Spare me your fake indignation, Yolanda said. It's not fake, the gray man spat. Well, it's not justified either, Yolanda said. There's no other ways to fix this but being banned, the gray woman said. Kapos pursed his lips. Well, he said, we could agree to a code of conduct of some sort. You're treating us like we're pariahs already, the gray man said. No more explosions, Yolanda said. No more equipment meltdowns or setting off the sprinklers or trashing the lobby. No more chasing people to the halls, no more maulings. Or what, the gray man said. Or your band, Capo said. But first, Grace said, they'll call us to clean up again. The gremlins looked at the hard faces around the room. Their anger was visible. This is an outrage, the gray man said. Good, Yotlanda said. We'll draw up the paperwork. Team three had two cars to make the long drive back to Moscow. Sal, Liam, and Manchu took one. Asante, Francis, and Grace took the other. The other three spent most of the ride out of the Russian countryside in relative quiet, enjoying the silence. Grace drove. Asante was in the passenger seat, Francis in back. Is this more than you asked for, Asante said. Are you talking to me, Francis said. Grace snickered a little. Yes, Asante said. If I'm honest, Francis answered, yes. I'm sorry, Asante said. I didn't think the conference would be like this, uh, though in retrospect I suppose I should have known better. You asked me if it was more than I asked for, not if it was more than I could handle. Francis said. You did handle it, Asante said, very well. Well enough to continue being the assistant to the archivist at the Black Archives, Francis said. Better than that. I just wish we were closer to knowing what happened to Team Four. All I have is that rumor, a rumor that is almost a cliche, of hikers coming across a mountain village in Poland in the 1800s. Not enough to be a real lead, especially given the time that passed between their disappearance and that rumor. I've been thinking about that, Francis said. In the context of a panel I went to about magic and time, one of the panelists had a theory about how magic could change time, not not let you go forward or backward in it, at least not in any controlled way, but it could let you come unglued from time, like Rip Van Winkle, or maybe the opposite of Rip Van Winkle if you weren't careful. It was all theoretical, but it got me thinking. Have you ever encountered anything like that? No. Asante said. Grace kept her eyes on the road. Francis leaned forward. But say it's possible. Say you could figure out how to unglue yourself from time. Why not something else? An inanimate object or, well, a place? How big a place, Asante said. "I I asked, Francis said. Again, it's only theoretical, but if someone really knew what they were doing, the place could be quite large. A house? A village? Or a city? Maybe the entire planet, if there was enough magic, and the people using it were strong enough. The entire planet sounds far-fetched, Asante said. Sure, Francis said. The point, though, was that the possibilities are wide open, which means that maybe Team 4 didn't disappear. They're just hiding. And not just hiding somewhere, but somewhere. Which means we can never find them, Asante said. At least not in my lifetime. Or mine, Francis said. Unless, Asante said, the orb can help us, Francis said. It's just an idea, Asante said. Do you think it's possible? I think it's possible that if Team Four made the orb, then we might be able to use it to follow them. You mean it could take us where or when they're hiding, Francis said. It's worth thinking about, Asante said. Definitely worth thinking about. Grace didn't say a word. Asante sat at her desk with the orb's manual, poring over a page. She understood the words on it, but it was difficult to tell how to translate that knowledge to working the orb. They needed time and tools, the space to tinker. Just as they had repaired and restored the archives themselves, she thought, they now needed to repair and restore the orb as they had never done before. Can we talk? Asante looked up. It was Menchu. Of course, Asante said. I just spoke with Monsignor Fox. Why, he doesn't have much jurisdiction over you, does he? He is unhappy about us opening the door to Team Force Laboratory. But think of what we have already learned, Asante said. She could feel the excitement rising in her and let it bubble to the surface. And if we are careful and clever. Careful, yes, Manchu said, cutting her off, which you haven't been. I don't like to bring this up, but once again, I feel I have to remind you. Of what? Asante said, cutting him off right back. That I am the only person on this team not touched by tragedy because of magic? Because I didn't destroy the place I was from as you did? Because I wasn't possessed by demons like Sal and Liam? Because I am not a slave to a candle? No, none of those things have happened to me. But I have seen my life's work shredded before my eyes. I have seen all of you, my dear friends, brought far too close to death. Isn't that enough? Arturo, I am proposing we learn to use magic to our advantage because of these things, not despite them. Some magic does not go mad. We know it, even if we haven't seen it. Why shouldn't we aspire to try to use it when we know we'll use it the right way and for the right reasons? Because there are no right reasons, Asante, Manchu said. I'm sorry to tell you, but it's true. Why are you sorry, Asante said. I don't have to take orders from you, remember? Or do I have to remind you of that? You don't, just as I don't have to remind you that I will report you if I have to, Menchu said. Anger flashed through Asante. She quelled it. Right now, she said, I'm only reading a book. Menchu looked annoyed. She didn't care. She waited until he left, then called Francis over. Did he threaten to report you? Francis said. Yes. So, what are we doing? Asante looked at the cover of the book on the desk in front of her. We're going ahead," she said, "like we said we would." You
0: are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Talmore, Sheshen Muraki. Talmore is my home. My family have worked the land for generations. My grand says the island does not belong to us, but we belong to the island. And we must be ready, for a great evil is coming. And death follows with it. Listen and subscribe to the latest season of Undertow, The Harrowing, a Storyglass production presented by Realm, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.
0: Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal el Motar, Mer Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Bookburners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts Spotify or at realm.fm.